0: It is wonderful to see you this morning, uh, unless you're on the stream, in which case, I can't see you, but I'm glad you can see us. I have a question for you now that you've said hello and, you know, got the brain juices going. What's the strangest book you ever read? Scratch that. What's the strangest book you ever read that you enjoyed? (laughs) We've got Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Love of, okay, a, a with Clint Eastwood, fantastic. Any others? One more, oh, <laughs> strangest book you enjoyed. Here's here's mine, it's called Foucault's Pendulum, and uh, this this is a very strange book and i am not recommending it to you all i'm saying is that i've read it multiple times i go back to it every few years and the first time i read it i had to have a dictionary nearby that's kind of my jam now in the bible perhaps the strangest book that i've encountered has been the book of leviticus leviticus it's uh, maybe even stranger than the book of revelation which is strange in its own way, but there's something about Revelation, about the promises of what are going to happen that are enticing, even if they're strange. Whereas Leviticus feels like something that time has just passed by, and it feels very strange and foreign. It's talking about things that feel like they are no more. And before we start next week our series, Greater Than, from the book of Hebrews, I wanted to briefly talk about Leviticus. What a, what a buildup, right? Um, I feel like one of the things that's necessary is to understand where the writer of Hebrews is coming from, and a lot of what he's coming from comes from the book of Leviticus. Okay, but here's the good news. With 27 chapters of Leviticus, 13 chapters of Hebrews, We're not going verse by verse this morning. Instead, we're just going to look at how Leviticus is structured. Big bins. What do they talk about? And we're going to look at a few images that Leviticus gives us of what it's about and what might the writer of Hebrews tap into as he goes along. And for for my uh, binning of Leviticus, I turn to... Uh, The late Jacob Milgram, who was my professor for a a book on the the, class on the Torah at Berkeley, and he he was a lovely man. He was a rabbi. He was a professor. He wrote this chunky three-volume translation and commentary on Leviticus. So, gives you an idea how deep into the, the stuff he was. He would not, I am sure, agree with much of what I'm going to say about Leviticus, rabbi. But I like the way he divided Leviticus as I looked back at it. And so here's here's what a 30,000-foot view of Leviticus looks like. Chapters 1 through 7, I'm going to call that system of sacrifice. Chapters 8 through 10 is the problem of priests. Chapters 11 through 16 is the practice of purity. Chapters 17 through 27, so the rest of the book, I'm going to call Code of Conduct. And you might look at that set of topics and go, Mike, that is not very interesting. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you, but here's what I want to say. Let's let God's word speak, because it spoke to them, and it can speak to us. It certainly spoke to the writer of Hebrews. And here's one of the things that I want to keep remembering. Uh, This book comes from a good giver, even if it seems strange to us. And when laws are given, laws are a window into the heart of the lawgiver. And so in this case, it represents God's values, the heart of God itself. So there's a a quotation up on the the screen there. Laws are a window into the heart of the lawgiver. They represent the lawgiver's values, which means that in Leviticus, we get a window into the heart of the Lord himself. Okay, without further ado, let's get into the system of sacrifice. Yeah! Okay, so the first seven chapters give guidance for things like burnt offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, sin offerings. These are foreign ideas to us, right? Um, We don't walk into church and expect one of those sacrifices to be made, let alone multiples. But at a high level, I just want to emphasize there is a wrong way to look at these And there's a right way to look at these. And I'm going to suggest that the wrong way is the more natural way we look at it and we go, this is an angry God. This is a bloodthirsty God. This is a God demanding all kinds of crazy-sounding rules. And I don't like this. And if that is your response, I understand. It's perfectly natural. But the God that you're thinking about is not the God who's giving this. It's a pagan God. That kind of defines pagan gods. You want to approach me? I'm going to need blood. You want to approach me? I'll let you know how you've done. There's no fellowship. And this God is a God of love. Now, the sacrifices and shedding of blood in Leviticus are not because of God's anger, but because he loves his people and he wants to be in community with his people. But as you'll see, if you read any of the Old Testament narratives, his people, like the rest of us, were always deeply soaking in sin. Mmm, what a delicious stew. So the writer of Hebrews looks back on this time and place and practice, and he says of Moses in Hebrews 9, Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Shortly after writing that, the writer adds this in Hebrews 10. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the blood and the fat and the grain and all the sacrifices described in this first section of Leviticus aren't removing sin. They're allowing worshipers who haven't achieved perfection to be near God's presence without being perfect. They're part of following Israel's responsibilities in their covenant relationship with God. They have a special relationship that nobody else has, and they've got i have got some, some things to uphold as part of that. But the big deal is these sacrifices are a cover. They are not a cure. Leviticus's sacrifices cover sin. They don't cure sin. And that's going to be a problem for God's people their whole existence. But more than that, the sacrifices as described are gifts brought by people coming to a set apart God, a mighty God, the greatest king who invites them into his presence. And some of you, the hundredth time you visit my house, you bring something because that's just how you are. Now, I was apparently raised by wolves. I've got no concept of that. You know, like you don't have to bring me a gift. But none of you are mighty kings and I'm not a mighty king. So it's kind of a different situation, the hospitality required. All right, God is pleased with the gifts spelled out in the first chapters of Leviticus and Professor Milgram said "Olah, which is the word that we translate as burnt offering, literally means that which ascends, which implies that the offering is entirely turned to smoke. So the whole burnt offering turns to smoke and we're not gonna have you know, a, uh, a fire this morning especially not if I can't light the the grill which would be kind of funny since we did a whole test. Lovely. So that which ascends implies that the offering turns entirely to smoke. And repeatedly in the first few chapters, we're told that the burnt offering is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So I get a mental picture of like the Simpsons God sniffing the air or something like that, big yellow bearded. That's not the picture here, it's a metaphor, okay? God isn't, hmm, what's on the barbecue? God is saying, my people are in fellowship with me. The people that I love and I've called to me are in fellowship with me. We are at harmony and peace with one another and that's what God wanted. There's one more thing that I wanted to say as part of this section. James Franco and I were talking about the first four chapters of Leviticus a couple of months ago because occasionally we do weird things like that. And the thing that struck us was not so much the different kinds of sacrifices. The thing that struck us was the tiered nature of the sacrifices. And what I mean is this, the the primary offering Uh, for the burnt offering is a bull. So you've got to have a, a cow, something of the cattle sort. It's supposed to be a male. It's supposed to be perfect. It can't have any kind of impurity. Can't be missing a leg and you didn't need it. It had to be something of value. The second tier exists as well, though. You could take something from the flock, and that would be a sheep or a goat. Again, male. Again, perfect. Now, both of these are costly, and the bigger, the more costly, right? But there's a third tier, and that third tier, you could sacrifice a bird. And we're talking a dove. We're talking something, uh, a pigeon, something that a person, a poor person, could potentially snare themselves or that wouldn't be very expensive. And so God... From the very beginning of his people's worship says, you do not have to be elite to come to me. You do not have to be wealthy to come to me. You do not have to have resources to burn, literally, in order to come to me. And the beautiful thing about that third tier offering, the bird doesn't have to be perfect. God says, you bring what you can. I take your intention and I accept your offering. I love you. That is so moving to me. Living in an area where we, we have way more money than most of the world. And we don't feel like there's ever enough. And we don't know how to help other people. And it's interesting that from the beginning, God baked into how his nation was to run. We're looking out for the poor. All right. You didn't have to be rich to have your offering be pleasing to God. Let's go to the next section. Hey, look, we're already up to chapters 8 through 10. This highlights the problem of priests, and priests are always going to be a problem. But these these chapters start with with a description of the priestly duties, and there were some sacrifices in the first section that I didn't even touch on because it was about purifying the priests. And it's sort of an interesting thought here. Those who are offering the sacrifices are in a rather difficult situation because they themselves sin. The priest sins and now he's not clean and he's supposed to offer a sacrifice on your behalf. Here's what Leviticus 4:3 says. If the anointed priest sins bringing guilt on the people, if he sins, he brings guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed and that's rough it's hard enough to keep clean before god and then you've got people above you interfering in the process and then the priest is always in the top tier of what he has to provide to god so he's gotta he's gotta have a bull. okay and here's how the priesthood gets officially started in one of the few passages in this book that's actually a narrative it describes All the ceremony, the first time they put this system into use. Leviticus 8. The Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron and his sons, their garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams, and the basket containing bread made without yeast. All of these are uh, things for offerings, for sacrifices. And gather the entire assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly gathered at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, Moses washes Aaron and his sons. He dresses Aaron like the French archaeologist in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what I'm talking about? Thank you. Um, And, of course... He's dressing like the high priest, not the other way around. Uh, There are multiple offerings that take place. And then they finish with a meal of meat and bread that are the priestly portion of the sacrifices that have been made. And then Aaron makes a sin offering and a burnt offering for himself after seven days and the sin offering and burnt offering for the people. He offers a fellowship offering for the people. And I kid you not, a wave offering. No, it's not like that. He waves the, the... sacrifice before the Lord and Leviticus 9 says this, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Now that is a worship service, right? Want some more of that? It's good while it lasts. Because here's what happens in Leviticus 10, Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, their censers, put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. What happened? It was going so well. Well, they decided they were going to innovate they decided, oh, I know God has all these holy utensils that you use for presenting the, the incense, but we've got our own. And we're, we're running the show now. I mean, we're the sons of the high priest. And this is the story of the priestly class all the way from the beginning, is we have seemingly many more examples of them falling down on the job than doing the job of bringing the people and the Lord together. And they make it more difficult than ever for the people to connect with God. Next section, look at that. We're on chapters 11 through 16, the practice of purity. And these are largely about issues of being clean and unclean. There are clean animals. The people were allowed to eat those. There are unclean animals. The people were not allowed to eat those. What's an example of an unclean animal? Pig, that's right and I smell bacon. Uh, Here's the thing, here's the thing. We don't know why some things are designated as clean and some things are designated as unclean. God said they were, and that's how the nation understood them. But there are also instructions for skin diseases. You might be able to think about examples where Jesus healed lepers, for example, and there were rules around this whole situation. There are rules about bodily discharges, about childbirth, and Leviticus doesn't explain why any of these things are clean or unclean. It just says, here's how you know if you're unclean and therefore can't be in the presence of God, and here's how you can know how to become clean depending on what your problem is. And my professor had some educated guesses about why certain animals appeared in one one category or the other. But he would agree that ultimately what this is about is God is creating a nation with its own identity and set of rules. And it doesn't matter what all the people around them are doing. Some core things are going to make a difference. Bacon, no thanks. It's something noticeable. It's something everybody can understand. And it's a reminder that I'm not clean and God is always clean. It's a reminder that I need to be cleaned up and that God's provided a way for me to be cleaned up and experience relationship with him. One thing that's worth highlighting is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So this is a a day that happens every year, and you take a fast from food, and you take a fast from work, and what the day is about is atonement being made for sin. Well, wait, I had all these sin sacrifices all year. Yeah, those are for ones that you knew about. You said, oh, crud, I I did X, and I'm gonna take the appropriate sacrifice and get right with God. Well, this one says, you know what? There were some you didn't even know about. Or maybe there was one that you did know about because you did something and somebody called you out on it and you went into denial. Fortunately, that never happens to us anymore, right? And the Day of Atonement was a day in which all that sin was taken care of, and the nation together was purified, and that was part of the practice of purity. Leviticus 16, 32-34 says, The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments, and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. Well, that's pretty good news. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. And this, this whole setup is where the idea of the scapegoat is introduced. So they, they cast lots, and there are two goats. So they roll the dice, and this one is going to be a sacrifice to god and this one is going to bear the sins of israel out of the camp and so the priest would put his hand on and the sin would figuratively go to the goat somebody would lead it out of the camp into the wilderness and off the goat goes with your sin with my sin because that's how the system was designed to make it okay for people to be before God, whatever, whatever they had done beforehand. But they needed their sin carried away because there were so many ways to go wrong. And that gets us to our last section. <sighs> Chapter 17 through 27, like this book, if you've ever tried to read the, the, the Bible from Genesis straight on through, like this isn't just a speed bump. This is where a lot of people just crash because it's just one restriction after another. And there are things like how not to sacrifice. Well, dumb ways to die, we've already seen that, right? Um, Forbidden sexual practices, characteristic of the pagans all around them. Ethical laws like when you are doing commerce, your scales shouldn't be cheating scales. That doesn't seem unreasonable, but probably needed saying. And this practice of leaving the edges of the field unharvested, and if you were harvesting and some stuff dropped on the ground, you weren't supposed to pick it up or come back for it. Why? Because the poor could come and by their own labor get some food, but also foreigners had a place in this whole national understanding of itself where they could come as well and be sustained. There are things like no sacrificing your children to Molech. Why did this even have to be said? A, sacrificing your children, and B, to some other god. And yet, it did. And yet, later in Israel's existence, it clearly happened. So, we've got holiness practices of priests. We've got Sabbath days and festivals. We've got a case of blasphemy and what happens to the person. Don't do that. Uh, The land gets a rest every seventh year. Um, Not quite... the the modern, you know, letting the the field lie fallow, but something like it. Fairness in buying and selling land, which was always temporary. And a year of jubilee, which would return the property to the family that was originally designated for it when they entered the land. And this was one of the things that made the system, in theory, so great. That if, if I rack up gambling debts, And I have to sell my family's land in order to pay off my gambling debts. I'm going to end up in a situation where I, I don't have land. I can't do anything. But in this system, I could say, hey, will you hire me? I'll work the land I've always been working. And until the year of Jubilee, I work for whoever bought it. And then when the year of Jubilee comes, it goes back to me so you get the benefit of my labor i get the benefit of sustenance and pay from the land and we all get the benefit of knowing in the end that things are going to be set right every 50 years at least according to god's plan there were rules against enslaving poor israelites me in that situation with my ridiculous gambling debt you, you couldn't make me a permanent slave i could only be hired um, And then dedicating people and property to God. Hey, I want to make a gift of whatever, um, how to do that. And near the end of this section comes a description of the nation's two choices, two choices before them, Leviticus 26, 12 through 17. Uh, I'll just read a little bit. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, then what? You're doomed? Well, a little bit. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you. And you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. So that's the very bad news of Leviticus. Because we know what happened, right? Uh, This is kind of how they lived. They rarely experienced the ongoing blessing of God's presence for very long at a time. And that's one reason that we're starting this series next week in the book of Hebrews called Greater Than. Why? Because Jesus is better than this whole system that I've been explaining about. So thinking about those four sections of Leviticus that I just said, you could see why it might be difficult for people to read it, right? None of that is naturally exciting. So it's low on stories, it's high on procedures. I've been telling people that it feels a little bit like you're reading the site operating procedures for a company that you don't work for in a business you don't know anything about and don't care about because it's all so foreign but the writer of hebrews didn't see leviticus that way so sidebar i say the writer of hebrews because we don't know who the writer of hebrews was now the church defaulted to uh, assuming pauline authorship a lot of people over the years have said paul wrote it and so my king james bible it says the epistle of paul the apostle to the hebrews and uh, i have to say that over the years that a lot of us have said no that's probably not it the use of language is different the form of argument is different there's not even a hey this is paul writing to you as he normally did but this is not a subject to have a strong opinion about In the year 225, the theologian Origen said something that I feel like we ought to remember here. Um, And Stuart Sachs quotes him when he says, no one knows for certain who wrote Hebrews. We were probably well advised simply to echo the words of Origen in the third century, God alone knows. Okay, that was, end of sidebar. The writer of Hebrews didn't see Leviticus as a bunch of irrelevant operating procedures. The writer of Hebrews saw those procedures as revealing a loving God's design for reconciling unreliable people like you, like me. Think of Leviticus like Howard Stark's map of the Stark Expo, okay? He lays out this this map, and it's not until much later that something good comes of it, because somebody comes along who can make use of that information. So what I'm saying is Jesus is way better than Tony Stark and Leviticus. Never mind. The book of Hebrews describes how the system established in Moses is made to properly function when Jesus runs it. Here's what Hebrews 10 says. Those who are being made holy. Did you hear that? One sacrifice. Not the burning of those cows and those goats and those sheep and those birds. Every time something happened. One time he did it. And he didn't just cover up my sin. He didn't just cover up your sin. What he did was take that sin away because he could do that. Okay. Hebrews will tell us more. So that was the fourth section about the code. We couldn't keep the code. We have a poor excuse for purity as well. Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences, consciences, easy for me to say, from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. It's not just soap on the outside. It's a cure for what's the root cause that's causing us to be sick. The writer continues, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once, To take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is such a dramatically different offering than what Leviticus ever promised to the people. This is freedom in a sense that those people never had the opportunity for. And you know what I do? I take it for granted. Virtually every day, I take it for granted. But let's keep going. So, couldn't keep the code, poor excuse for purity, now we're on those poor, problematic priests. Peter Piper said the priests were a perpetual problem. It was a kind of family business, is the deal, right? Um, There were a lot of duds in this family, not just Aaron's two oldest sons. It kept happening. And uh, a guy named George Guthrie points out that you're kind of stuck with what you get from the family. Uh, if you were a Levitical priest, if you were a priest according to the law, the whole basis for you being a priest would be who daddy was, what family you came from, because you had to come from the tribe of Levi in order to be. A priest and the writer of Hebrews explains how Jesus replaces this family priesthood with an older better priesthood and we'll get to details of how that works once we're into the series but it's kind of ingenious and it has the following advantages from Hebrews 7 now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office but because Jesus lives forever he has a permanent priesthood Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself it's hard to read that and not go I am called to a higher level of self-sacrifice than I was aware of because my king my leader my Lord gave up everything to go and be one of those poor unprivileged people that his society didn't care about the way God had intended But what's worse than that is, look, I'm not a priest, right? Um, But I am a pastor. And as I've been grappling with the book of Leviticus, one of the things that really has struck home for me is how ready I am to run people down with my mouth in my mind. And I'm saying, I've got a problem. And God is making me more aware of it as it comes up. But I've got a problem. And I want you, congregation, to be grateful that you're not reliant on my perfection in order to have a connection with God. I am not a critical piece. I could be an influence for good or for ill. But Jesus alone, the perfect one, has already made the sacrifice that makes you okay with God. All right. The sufficient sacrifice is, is our last Because it was our first. And what happened in Israel's history was that the hearts of the people were never long in sync, in rhythm, in harmony with God. Not with his heart. And there was a a warning late in Leviticus that pretty much comes true. Leviticus 26, I will destroy your high places where other gods are worshipped. I will cut down your incense altars and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols. Dead gods and their dead followers. Rough. And I will abhor you. Yuck. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste to your sanctuaries, and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. So that was no longer the beautiful smell of fellowship with God that was being smelled. It wasn't an aroma that was pleasing because it wasn't reflecting the harmony that God intended the whole time. This is perhaps clearest in the prophecy of Amos, who God sent to deliver some really bad news about the consequences of their injustice. Amos 5, 21 and 22, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. There's no sacrifice that you or I can make that will keep us in right standing with God. No act of service, no act of justice, no generosity, no purity, no holiness that we can muster. And that's why he sent Jesus. He sent the God-man who could live with us, who could live among us but not live like us. He lived in our sin cursed world without himself sinning. And Jesus is our permanent sacrifice, that Ola, that burnt offering, which really means that which ascends. Hebrews 4 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let them approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus didn't need to ascend as a burnt offering. He ascended as the first human being with a glorified body. He didn't ascend as a smell. He ascended as a victor. And because he came to live among us, keeping the code in every way perfectly pure with the one proper priest, he is our all-sufficient sacrifice. So speaking of ascending worship team, could you ascend to the platform, please? So God with us has ascended to sit at the right hand of God Most High. And he's left the comforter with us, And when Jesus returns, we'll be able to be in God's presence forever because he has made us part of the family. It's not our family that matters anymore, it's his family, Hebrews 2. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer, the trailblazer of their salvation, perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy And those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. If you are in Christ, he's not ashamed to call you a brother or a sister. If you are in Christ, he literally does call you a brother or sister. If you're not yet in Christ, what's preventing you from following, from enjoying being part of that family? from realizing your true identity as one of us, as Jesus would say. If you are in Christ, here's how you are to live. Hebrews has an instruction for how you are to sacrifice. And I want to close by reading Hebrews 13, 15, and 16 as a prayer. Father Almighty, I thank you that through Jesus we may continually offer you a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess Jesus' name. Help us to remember to do good and to share with others which are sacrifices that please you. I pray this in the name of our great high priest, Jesus, your perfect son. Amen.